Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, verse 32, um, and then chapters 32 and 33. I did want to, one thing, and this is one of the reasons I'm actually sharing the whole screen tonight, is I wanted to bring up a couple maps. And this is, now Aaron's not actually here tonight, but he has some questions uh, about where Moab and Edom were. And Jeff actually had given us the correct answers. So this is not a refutation of Jeff, it's a vindication of Jeff. But I did figure that I would go ahead and just show you the map so you could kind of see what's going on. So you can see Moab and Edom down there on the um, south. And, the and then uh, you can see that the red areas are the areas that are what the place is today. So you can see that Moab and Edom are part of Jordan. And uh, we can zoom in a little bit and get a little bit bigger picture, better picture of that. So that's where they are. So I just wanted to show you that since uh, Aaron was asking, it's been a while since we brought up our maps. So let's go ahead and jump in uh, Ezekiel 38 through 39. So here's the thing, I, I wanna make a little preface comment. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 are passages in Ezekiel which are often called apocalyptic in nature. And that, that when we think of the word apocalypse, we think of um, end times, right? We think of, you know, the moment Armageddon or uh, Revelation or the, the kind of the moments where the world ends and everything is, is kind of put back together. And that's, that's often apocalyptic literature seems to be referring to that. But apocalyptic literature is a very specific genre within scripture, just like you have prophecies and you have wisdom literature and you have histories and you have uh, poetry and you have uh, you know, letters, epistles. So we, you have a lot of different kind of variety of literature and apocalyptic literature is, is a genre. And it, uh, the reason I want to just kind of talk about it a little bit is because there's a, there are some things we do know as we read it that we can count on and some things that we have to recognize are just speculation. Um, and so apocalypse literally does mean revelation. So when we talk about, for example, in the book of, in the New Testament, the revelation of St. John, yeah, that could be called the apocalypse of St. John. It's the same, same idea. Um, but these prophecies are revelations about things that are to come often seen as end times, but not necessarily specifically. They often involve symbols, which are very hard for us to understand, um, meaning us as the readers today. And the thing that we don't know is it's possible, some people argue that the symbols in the book of Revelation, in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel, the symbols in these apocalyptic pieces of literature were really clear to the original audience. We don't know if that's true, but it's possible. It's possible that they're symbols we don't understand because we're not in the right context. And so it, it makes it even more mysterious to us than it needs to be. It's possible the symbols didn't make any more sense to them than they do to us because it's all referring to things that are way in the future and can't even be recognized uh, until we get there. But we don't know. And that's what's important to realize is that in apocalyptic literature, the text rarely explains itself. It, it doesn't actually tell us what we're seeing. But, and so we'll talk about what that means, what the implications are for us as we read it. But one thing that we do see is all apocalyptic literature in, in scripture has the same intent. And that intent, interestingly enough, is to encourage not to frighten. The message that comes from all apocalyptic literature that we read it is that it's intended to say, hey, things look really bad right now. Things look really bleak right now. Things are really difficult. In fact, it looks like we're losing. We're kind of in the, in the dark night. We're in this, this grand story that we're going through and we're in that middle point of the book where things are really, really bad, or even near the end where things are really bad before the hero rescues everybody. And that's the point is to say, things look really bad right now. We're, we look to be like we're losing, 
but there is a day coming when God will win and he will win big and there will be no more suffering and there will be no more persecution after it. And that seems to be sort of the tenor of the apocalyptic literature and scripture is to get, make that point, is to encourage people at a moment when there's a lot of persecution, there's a lot of suffering, when it looks like they're on the losing side, is to encourage them to remember God's going to win at the end and he's going to restore you and he's going to vindicate himself and everything's going to be okay. Hang in there. The story isn't over yet. And when we get to the last chapter, you'll find out that we're on the winning side. And that's kind of the, the general tenor of the apocalyptic stories. And this is true. Um, now, a lot of times that, that, like we've talked about before, that could mean that it's both a current and a, a future prophecy. So we've seen Isaiah, for example, prophesy about, and Jeremiah more specifically, prophesy about the restoration of Israel after the exile. But we've also seen him prophesy about the coming of the Messiah and kind of conflate the two because the prophecy for both can be true and both give that same sort of hope that's there. But the thing I think to remember, and this is what's really important, is that because the symbols are ambiguous to us, because we do not understand the symbols, because we really just don't know exactly what's being referred to, what happens as we watch historically is that culturally, we always assign meaning to the symbols that make sense to us in our current culture. That doesn't necessarily mean we're wrong or right, but it's important to recognize we do that based upon where we are, not based upon the text itself, because the text just doesn't tell us. And it's really important to understand that, that the text isn't explaining what these symbols are, it's just revealing to us. So in the following two chapters of Ezekiel, we see a lot of these things, and that's why they're regarded as apocalyptic literature. It does say things are really bleak right now, things are really bad right now, but God's going to win, and he's going to win big. And when he wins, it's going to be all over. There's going to be no more trouble, there's going to be no more suffering, there's going to be no more persecution. And, and so they speak of this, this conquering God uh, over the enemies, right, of Israel. And so Ezekiel includes even some symbols that no one knows what they mean. He brings in some symbols as an indication of what God's going to do, and the the thing that often happens in apocalyptic literature is the enemy that God is going to conquer is part of these symbols. And since we don't know who that enemy actually is or what those symbols represent, a lot of times, as I was mentioning earlier, we, we tend to say those symbols are the people that look like the enemy to us in our current day. And I just want you to bear that in mind. When we get into Ezekiel, I'll give you some examples historically of how this has happened, how this has been read differently throughout church history based upon what's happening culturally rather than based upon the text itself. And I make that point not to say that anybody's right or wrong. It's certainly possible that at some point that just so happened that the cultural idea lines up with what this is about. I'm not saying it has no meaning, but I do think it's important to understand that the text really doesn't tell us. That if we're gonna apply you know, serious linguistic or hermeneutic study to it, what we're gonna discover is the text just doesn't reveal itself. And that's the nature of apocalyptic literature. You see it here, you see it in Daniel, you see it in Revelation. So it's very um, exciting and satisfying sometimes to have a preacher tell you exactly what all these symbols are. And I would love to do that. Um, but I'm just letting you know, as we go to the apocalyptic literature, I'm not going to do that because I don't, I don't know. And I don't have confidence that I know what they stand for. All right. So that's just kind of a little, a little precursor before we jump into the chapters. Anybody have any questions, thoughts, comments about that before we jump in? All right. So in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the, the kind of the mysterious symbols that Ezekiel uses are a place and a person. He talks about Gog and he talks about Magog. So Gog is the prince of the land of Magog. 
And the interesting thing is we have no idea who these people are. They're not enemies. You know, we, we've heard of Babylon. We've heard of Assyria. We've heard of Egypt. We've heard of Moab. We've heard of Edom. We've heard of Aram. We've heard of Elam. We've heard of all these enemies that Israel's had, but we've never heard of Gog and Magog. And now here they come up all of a sudden in the story of Ezekiel, and it's not, doesn't seem to be a contemporary enemy, and it's not an enemy that we know of historically since Ezekiel. So we can't point clearly to those and say this is who they are. So it really appears that Gog and Magog themselves are sort of this, this abstract symbol uh, of the enemy without revealing who they are. Um, and again, we can speculate on who they are, but the tendency is to do that based upon who we see as our enemy now. So let's jump on in and see what he says. He says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So just to give you a few examples of what we were talking about, kind of our historic tendency to identify apocalyptic literature according to the moment we're in, to see the conquered enemy be whoever our current enemy is. You go all the way back to the 1600s, there's a commentator named John Trapp who says that Meshach is the, is the Muslims and Tubal is the Roman Catholics. And he says this, quote, these two are conjoined to show as some think that the Turks and Popolines shall at length join their forces to root out the true religion and that while they're tumultuating, don't even know what that word is, and endeavoring the church's downfall, Christ shall come upon them and confound them. I think you can see, as we look at it, there's nothing in the text that says this is the Muslims and Catholics. And it'd be really weird if it was the Catholics. It could be. That would definitely be prophecy, but it wouldn't be something Ezekiel would understand. Um, but it's just, a, it's just kind of an arbitrary speculation, because at the time that John Trapp is writing, those were the two people he perceived as the enemies. In the 1980s, uh, which I grew up through uh, reading a lot of books, uh, a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, for example. There were a lot of books about the end times, 70s and 80s. And, and as, as I was growing up that in the 80s, the trend was to see um, Russia because, as the enemy, because that's who the enemy was for, uh, for so much of the world and for us in America, who genuinely were uh, scary people. And so there's interesting thing there, even it says in the text, it says, I am against you, God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. The truth is that can be translated, I am against you, Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. That word Rosh, we don't know what it is. If you assume it's a place, then it means prince of Rosh, but it could be a title meaning chief, which is what most translations do now. But in the 80s, it was popular to think that Rosh meant Russia, that it sounded like Russia, so it meant Russia, and therefore Meshach was Moscow and Tubal was Tobolsk. Now, these are, this is a, a nice thing because they sound similar to us, but again, there's nothing linguistically in the text that actually makes that make sense. It's just sort of fits good to us. But commentators in the 70s and 80s said that what this was talking about was Russia, that Russia was going to come against Israel, and that's what this prophecy is about. I remember shortly after 9-11, uh, listening to a very popular speaker at the time, his name was Walid Shabbat, and he was a uh, Muslim converted to Christianity. And he, again, he prophesied, he went back to John Trapp a little bit, and his whole uh, message was that he believed that Gog and Magog were the Muslims and that, that they were the terrorists like, like um, ISIS and, and the Taliban. And again, there was nothing in the text that says it has to be that, but that was, again, at that moment in our culture, it was easy to see them as the enemy. So I just give those as examples 
of how the, the various theories about Gog and Magog don't come so much from the text itself, but from us grappling with who's likely to be opposed to Israel right now, who's likely to fit that picture of the enemy, could be right. If we're in the end times, it certainly could be this person that looks like it might be. But if there's another 50, 100,000 years, and we just don't know, then that could change again. A lot of things could change. Um, so, there's, so there's things we know and things we don't know. What we do know is that Gog is not mentioned as an enemy of Israel anywhere else in scripture. This is the, the only place, the first place, and nowhere else in the Old Testament. This, some of these ideas are repeated in the New Testament, but they seem to be drawing from Ezekiel themselves. And so th this is the first place and really the only place we see this. We can't look at the text and say, well, this is who Gog is. Um, there is one verse in Chronicles which mentions Agog, but it seems to be totally unrelated to this. It doesn't seem to have any reference. Rosh doesn't exist as far as we know, which is why today most translators believe it's a title, meaning chief, um, rather than Prince of Rosh, it's the chief prince. You'll see that in most of your translations. And then Meshach and Tubal are, are people north of Israel, near the Caspian Sea, um, but they've never been enemies of Israel in any of the history that we're aware of. So it's interesting that they're brought up here. So they're, they're real people. They, they are part of whatever Gog and Magog will be, but we don't really understand how they fit into all this as well. So what do we know? We know that a previously unnamed enemy with a ruler named Gog who rules over more than one people, or Magog, who rules over more than one people in a territory to the north of Israel will invade the promised land sometime after the restoration. That is what this prophecy is about, that after they've been restored, this enemy is going to attack them. And so let's go ahead and read the specifics, such as they are, about what that looks like. I will turn you around, he says to Gog and Magog. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them all with shields and helmets. Also Gomer with all its troops and Beth to Gomar from the far north with all its troops. The many nations with you. Get ready, be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered about you and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations and now all of them live in safety. You and all your troops and the many nations with you will go up advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. And you will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful and unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars. I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations rich in livestock and goods living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say to you, have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and to seize much plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations, nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel. At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen in that day. 
When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make some myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So you guys tell me from the text itself, what do we know about this prophecy without without trying to identify specifically maybe who Gog and Magog are, unless you see something in the text that tells you. What do you think? What Just someone kind of give me back some of the pieces. What is this prophecy about? What is Ezekiel telling the Israelites, or the, the, the exiles? What, is, what, are they, what should they be learning? What should they be experiencing? What is the point here? Just kind of feed back to me what, what's in the text. Anything that stands out to you? I'm really confused. Um, so, I mean, apparently... We do know that Meshach and Tubal were north of Israel, right? Yep. Um, so why, why, is, why is this considered so mysterious then? Because Meshach and Tubal are two places, but they've never been enemies of Israel. And who is... What is who is Magog and, and what is Gog, or who is Gog and what is Magog? Okay, it seems like though we've had other prophecies and that hadn't like happened, like with other places about places coming together, like like Egypt and like I don't know, like Babylon or something, you know, with like Israel and like worshiping god and stuff like that why why i don't understand why this is so different we know what those are we know what those places are we know who those are in other words egypt isn't a simp doesn't have to be a symbol it's egypt but what is magog that's that's the difference um but but it's okay so you're you're is your position you're saying that this is a prophecy about have a position but go ahead Well, he's saying that the plain text seems to you that is saying that there will be someone literally named Gog who will be prince of a land named Magog, and that it's just about that, and it just hasn't happened yet. Well, I, well kind of. I mean, it would be weird to take, I mean, it seems like it's probably at least a little bit like literal since like it's talking about two places that actually like exist sure well it's talk- well it's talk- it's actually there's more places that exist listed in what we read right it also mentions yeah input and things like that right yeah so there's the allies of gog but that still doesn't tell us who the who this person is who this prince is and so i understand you're you're saying possibly you're at least speculating there is no symbolism here this is just a, a literal prophecy of Gog and Magog, who are allied with these countries we know about, uh, attacking Israel. That's that's fair. 
there are many people who believe they're symbols just because we don't have, they don't seem to be real countries. They don't seem to be a real prince that we have any knowledge of. It's certainly possible. It's just somebody and a place that hasn't yet arisen. Well, okay, that, that really doesn't, well, I don't understand what they would say that. Like if you said like, okay, Utah and Nevada are going to like some dude there's gonna un- no, unite them or something and attack like Colorado and New Mexico. Like, I mean, it's, it isn't like that. It's like if you said the country of Banasquich is going to be the most powerful country in the world and it's going to attack America and part of Banasquich is New Mexico and Utah. We'd be like, that's weird because New Mexico and Utah are part of America. They're not part of Banasquich and we've never heard of Banasquich. Is Banasquich a real thing? That's that's what the deal is. Okay. That's why it's different. Other thoughts? Yeah, you guys can't <laughs> argue for Meredith's position, or or uh, what else do you see? Oh no, I'm I'm not arguing about anything, or I don't have a position. I'm just possibility that she brought up <laughs> that she's not owning, but that she brought up. Um, any anybody else? What else do you guys see in the text? What do we know? So Gog is joining with a whole bunch of countries. Yep, that to, is one thing we do see to, to invade Israel. And then at some point, God's going to turn against him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the base. That's good. That, and, and just to, to not miss the, the basic story here. Yeah. So whatever Gog is, does align itself, align itself with, with nations all around Israel, um, not just from the north, but all around Israel. And they are going to attack and they're going to attack in full force. And then God's going to push him back. What else do we see in the text? Earthquake. Yeah. That, that when God pushes him back, it's going to be dramatic. It's going to be yeah. huge. It's going to be something that everybody sees and is impressed by. What else do we? Uh, what else do we see? Why do they attack? Because Israel is weak. So there's actually there's two reasons we're told they attack. One peaceful is peaceful and unsuspecting. So are yeah. So they're. They're not looking to join this fight. They're just minding their own business, doing their own thing, living life today, and tending the crops. And that, that's true. It says basically they are at a place, they've recovered from war, they're recovering from war, things are good, they're not, they're not spoiling for a fight. But the other thing, but the but the, but I don't know if that's a reason they're attacked, but one reason you guys are all hinting at is is where he says this plan will come to your mind to attack the unwound village. So one of the reasons that we see that is because, and I, in my head, I keep confusing Gog and Magog. Which one's the prince? Gog. Oh, okay. So it's because Gog gets this plan in his head that he wants to attack Israel. So one reason they're attacked is because Gog wants to. He's the, he's the one who leads them all. He gets this alliance together and he decides to attack. But there's actually another reason we're told that they attack. Did anybody catch it? I think it's because, because God brings them against Israel and similar to with Assyria and Babylon. Yes, it's really important not to miss that. When God says, I will put hooks in you and drag you, he's not saying, that's not where he's saying he's going to drag him away from Israel. That's where he's saying he's going to drag him to Israel. (laughs) So, So he does this thing where he gives, as he often does when he's prophesying about these other nations, he gives both sides. He says, on the one hand, you're going to make a choice. You're going to want to do it. And that's, that's wicked of you. But on the other hand, you're not in as control as you think you are, because I am also bringing you in to do this. And the reason God is bringing them in is so that he can once and for all show his power. 
that a moment when Israel's unwalled, when it's peaceful, when it's not looking for a fight, when it's defenseless, all of these nations are going to come against Israel, and Israel's going to win, and they're going to win big in such a way that God is going to be glorified and revealed for who he is. So that's kind of the story. So it very much fits that apocalyptic picture of everything looks bad, and it's going to look worse, but God is going to win, and you're going to be on the winning side. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be perfect. Um, anything yeah. else? Yeah that we see yeah go ahead well yeah and even i mean it's not even just like the nations it's like and the earthquake i mean there's like plague and torrents of rain hailstorms and burning sulfur yeah this is the other way we think of apocalypse right is is uh, apocalyptic images are always you know uh burning sulfur falling from the sky and 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 you know earthquakes and natural disasters and and that's because oftentimes when we when we see these kind of descriptions that's the nature of that's the the dramatic nature of god showing his power that it is going to be something that's going to go just beyond this battle between nations and that people will see oh yeah this is a big work of god we've seen god do that throughout the old testament various times where earthquakes and floods and and plagues and rats and all sorts of things were part of the ways that Israel won their battles so that Israel themselves couldn't say, yeah, we did that. Um, but also so that everybody would say, oh, this is God doing it. So that's, that's important too. What else? Anything else? Um, well, I, I think it's interesting where he says to like every man's sword will be against his brother. Um, so that just seems like, yeah, a lot of God really like setting up the scene and kind of like he's really the one in control and working out everything yeah it's also remin reminiscent of things he's done we've seen him lead em enemies with jehoshaphat right exactly with and other people the entire army killed themselves before jehoshaphat and his army even got there and they get there and they're like wow they did the job for us yeah so that i think is another example of that there is one other kind of key element that shows up in the text does anybody have any other things they might suggest might be what i'm thinking of not that you can read my mind, but does anything else stand out to you? If you're hearing this from Ezekiel for the first time, is your impression this is going to happen soon? And if so, I don't know. And if not, I don't know. so does the text give Possibly. you? Well, it talks I mean, about. It... Oh, go ahead. Oh, it just says, get ready, be prepared. Yeah, I think you mentioned the latter years comment. So there are a couple of things that he mentions. One is he says, in these latter years, um, which is almost identical to the phrase we use of end times, right? I mean, it means not now, but but later on. He also talks about prophecies of uh, prophets who prophesied about this for years and years and years and years, and it finally came. So there is this idea, I think, of it being a long time. Now, you could read it or hear it if you're in Ezekiel's time. You could hear it as saying that they've been prophesying about this for a long time and now it's coming but we don't see that we don't we don't we don't see this sort of specific prophecy having been prophesied for a long time um for years and years and years and years so i, I think there's reason to think that ezekiel is even setting this up as this is going to happen in the far future if nothing else we know it's after the restoration which is at least another 69 years or so so uh, i think they they have an expectation it's going to be a while yet If it was being prophesied before, was Gog specifically mentioned in the prophecies? See, Gog has never been before in anybody's prophecies. 
He just showed up. Yeah. Ezekiel brings him totally out of the blue. Yeah. So we don't um, about that in other prophecies. Yes, go ahead. Well, Ezekiel's got quite an imagination, so <laughs> could have made up God. Yes, if he intended it to be a symbol of, of an unnamed enemy. Right, right. Yeah. It, it's easier to talk about Gog than it is to talk about the unnamed enemy, right? It's easier to, to give a name. And that's what a lot of people do believe, that this is apocalyptic literature using this symbol that maybe the Israelites knew what he meant, or maybe it is about something future, and the name Gog and Magog are both just uh, symbols for something else. It would seem weird, too, that, like, Ezekiel would, like, make up a place and someone in it but then know about all these other like but then put all these other nations that they already or areas that they already know about in it um it seems it i mean it doesn't seem any weirder than anything else ezekiel's done it, it makes a sort of sense to me because again he's wanting to say this, this unnamed enemy will align with all of these enemies around you that you already know about. But by using the unnamed enemy, he's pointing out it's not one of these other enemies. Just because he's aligning with all these other countries, don't be confused, it's not these other countries. It's somebody different, it's somebody bigger. Um, and possibly oh, okay. somebody in the future that he doesn't have a name for. Okay, okay. And he's gonna be wiped out. What's that? God's going to be wiped out. I will summon right. a sword against God. <laughs> right. It's going to be a dramatic victory. So as for, so here's the thing. So he says latter years, but maybe this is down the line. And again, most, most of the contemporary commentators will tell you this is an end times prophecy. They do have one other piece of information which lends credence to that, and that's the book of Revelation, because John uses the same terms. And this is what he says. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. This is in Revelation 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So like as we move forward, we try not to get too far ahead of, of what the people in Ezekiel's time would know. As we go, we try to take things in order as, we, as much as we can. So we're not going to get into details now. But as we go forward, we'll talk more about this thousand years are over. What does that mean? That's a particular marker for John. It's a particular time. There's, there's disagreement about exactly what that thousand years looks like or means. But John says there is this thousand years. There's this millennium of something. And then when that ends is when he says this Gog and Magog thing will happen. So that would be much, much later um, than Ezekiel's talking about. And that would put it definitely in what we would believe would be the end times. And that's in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. So to I Peter, find it weird. Oh, sorry. Oh, go right ahead. And maybe this is just the nature of prophecy or something, or I'm just not getting something. But I find it weird because, like, I mean, like, Tarshish was around then, but it's not really technically around now, or, like, even other places that talk about, you know, 
there being um, like other places in different prophecies, it seems like that um, they talk about, but they're not really around right now either. But I mean, obviously the land is there. Um, I mean, I guess I don't know how else they would mention it, but like, um, I mean, they're talking, I mean, I guess it could come back, but they're talking about like the, um, the merchants of Tarshish. I mean, I mean, I guess it could come back. So I guess and, I, could, I could see that being a really specific choice to keep the um the the big sort of the biggest focus of this is that mysterious and uh, now i don't remember which is the person but gog and that nation but if ezekiel so if ezekiel wanted to do both tell them that it was things that was happening in the future that they didn't understand but also ground it in the real world in which they exist i could see choosing to create a unnamed nation as sort of the big bad, but use the specific places where they lived for those regions, even though it may not actually be Tarshish that rises up when it happens. But it helps, it creates this, it does create this dissonance even for the listeners where it is grounded in their real world, but it also exists in a world that they're not quite a part of yet. I don't know if that makes any sense or not. It does. And maybe that's the nature of more the nature of the pop apocalyptic thing, because I mean, it seems like, like other prophecies or whatever are like more specific and not made up or they're clearly like, not like actual prophecy. Is that kind of a little bit of the nature of the that, that is so that's why some so you yes so you've kind of hit it on the head the tension that you're feeling is probably the reason that many people regard 38 and 39 as apocalyptic because if it's if it's prophecy of the genre we've been reading you do come to this place where okay so if it's if all of the words in here are are literal and none, none of them are symbols then it means there will be a time in the future will god where gog and magog and tarshish and tubal and meshach and Dedan and all these places will exist at once. And, th and that is a little bit of a stretch because they didn't all exist back then and some of them are gone now. So it would require that they come back, like you say. Certainly not impossible, but it's a little bit, I think that's why for other people that, and also the nature of the story being so large and God's victory being so complete. And then John also talking about it in Revelation, it does lead to the idea that, okay, what's happening here is we do have this tension of symbols combined with real world things. And because they're symbols, they don't, it, it gives us some latitude in, in, the, in the names, in the literalness of which nations are actually there. And more that he's just kind of identifying, as Lorian said, real world contemporary people in line with this, this people that are not quite of their world to give them this apocalyptic sense. So I think some of the tension you're hitting at is the reason that a lot of people would regard this as apocalyptic prophecy, as apocalyptic literature. Because okay. even that, if it makes sense, even if it's something that's going to happen in the far future, he wants the Israelites to listen and feel like it applies in some way. So I think there's that choice of 
if it's all countries that they don't recognize the name of, they're going to be like, none of those are real places. <laughs> this means nothing. But if the point is, I'm going to raise up this mysterious force. Um, and here's all the real countries that you know that are going to align with it. Then I could see using those, even that doesn't necessarily mean all those countries are going to exist at the same moment in reality by those names. Yeah, it does kind of feel to me, but I mean, I don't know why it has to, it's just a different genre, but it does kind of feel to me then like God's like not being upfront because by like, he's not being like truthful or totally consistent but I guess if it's just like a different like I don't know like Spanglish or like well it's like a reality combining reality and like fantasy or whatever well, it's like when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer sowing in his field it's not really like a kingdom farmer sowing in his field it's it's fair for God to use other genres and metaphors and symbols and that doesn't make him dishonest. It actually is a way of trying to drive home the point more clearly and succinctly. And I think this could be one of yeah. those. Okay, that kind of makes sense. Sorry. No, no, no sorry at all. To take so much time. No, I think it was a good discussion. Truth is, uh, the rest of this isn't gonna take that long. So I kind of knew we'd have a little discussion on this. So it's all right. Um, good, any other thoughts? Any other questions or comments or other arguments or positions that anyone wants to take or questions? <laughs> I, I had one question. Um, so this is addressed to Son of Man. So is that like is that reference to Jesus, or is that just like another use of this phrase? That's a really good question. So that's something we've talked about. God uses that phrase with Ezekiel from the beginning of his ministry. He calls him Son of Man, and um, you're right that that becomes a term for the Messiah. And so Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. So, so the, the, the indications, I think the, the, the reasons that we can speculate that God uses Son of Man with Ezekiel are, number one, he does want Ezekiel to be seen as a messianic type, as sort of an image of the Messiah to come. He's not the Messiah, but like David, he'll kind of be a picture in some ways of who the Messiah will be. And so by using the same term, Son of Man, which conceivably by this time among the Israelites was already understood as a messianic term, um, by using that phrase, it could be a way of, of indicating that, that look to Ezekiel for examples of what the Messiah will be like. The other possibility is almost the opposite. <laughs> and so you can figure out which it is. And that's that Ezekiel is so weird and he does such strange things like, like the bones that dance around that God wants people to not be confused and realize that Ezekiel is, is just a man. Um, and so can those both be true at the same time? Yes, they feel a little bit at odds, but even the term son of man for the Messiah, it turns out part of the point of that is so that when Jesus arrives, we'll be able to see that, that tension between someone who comes from the human lineage and yet is also God. And so it's a, it's a messianic term that to us means God, but if you think about the phrase son of man, it literally means human. Um, so anyway, you're right though, good catch. That's something that he's called Ezekiel throughout all of Ezekiel's prophecies. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Absolutely. Other questions or thoughts? All right. Very cool. Uh, let's see. And now we come to Ezekiel 39. And this is a moment where this should be very familiar to you. We've we've been going, we've experienced this throughout the Old Testament now for a few years. And when the Hebrews have something really important 
that they want to talk about, a past event, or even in this case, a future event, what do they do? Say it again. You got it. <laughs> so Ezekiel 39, I'm, it adds a little bit of new information. It emphasizes some things differently, but it's really, I think, just a repetition of what we've just seen. So let's go ahead and, and take a look at it. Um, oh, I will say this. this. Here's another thing that leads to the idea that, that there's some symbolism here. Um, so I mentioned that John, in chapter 20, he draws from the Gog and Magog, and he says they're the ones that are going to attack Israel after the millennium. Um, and then, but then in chapter 19, so the chapter before that, John actually links chapter 19 to chapter 39 of Ezekiel and places that in a completely different chronological context, which is confusing because 38 and 39, as we read them, you'll see, I think they're the same event at the same time. And yet John uses them for two different events, which I think points to the idea that John is using them and saying, these events that Ezekiel described, these are the kinds of examples of the kinds of things that are happening here in Revelation, which leads back to the idea that this somehow this is all sort of, I don't, I don't want to say it's just a metaphor. I, I think there's real prophecy here, but there is a symbolism to it to where it sort of doesn't all have to pin down chronologically as we would like it to. Um, anyway, when we get to Revelation in about 10 more years, um, we, can, uh, we can talk about that again, but I just wanted to bring that up because it's a peculiar thing. Okay, chapter 39. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in the safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, profaned, and the nations will know that the Lord, that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I've spoken of. Those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up, the small and large shields, the bows and arrows, the war clubs and spears. For seven years, they will use them for fuel. They will not need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forest because they will use the weapons for fuel. And they will plunder those who plundered them and loot those who looted them, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is also problematic for John's chronology of this happening after the millennium, because for there to be a seven years where they're looting other nations, that also doesn't fit with John's story of how things unfold. So again, I'll let you wrestle with that for now. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel in the valley of those who travel east of the sea. It will block the way of the travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the Valley of Hamagog. For seven months, the Israelites will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them, and the day I display my glory will be a memorable day for them, declares the Sovereign Lord. People will be continually employed in cleansing the land. They will spread out across the land, and along with others, they will bury any bodies that are lying on the ground. After the seven months, they will carry out a more detailed search, and as they go through the land, anyone who sees a human bone will leave a marker beside it until the gravediggers bury it in the valley of Ham and Gog near a town called Hamana. And so they will cleanse the land. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals. Assemble and come together from all around to the sacrifice I am preparing for you, the great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. 
There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I am preparing for you, you will eat fat till you are glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table, you will eat your fill of horses and riders, mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the sovereign Lord. When I first read this through, I had to go back and make sure that it was indeed the animals that are feasting on this and not the people. So it is the animals. It's still a very, very poignant, powerful, and somewhat bizarre picture. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay on them. From that day forward, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will now restore the fortunes of Jacob and will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name. They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. They will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. So there's our apocalyptic chapters. Any thoughts, comments, anything stand out to you from that second chapter? I am really confused about the chronology of how all this happens. Cause it didn't talk, did it talk about like them being exiled in the other one? Yeah, it said I will restore them. After I went back, it did mention that. So exiled. That's that's the only. So they were okay. So okay. So it like brings. So then God brings them back, and then God, well, Magog, and then all these other like nations come against them. Yeah, but you don't know how much space is between those two statements, right? And when Ezekiel says in the latter days or in the latter years, he could be indicating there's a lot of space. So we know it's after the exile, but we don't know how long after the exile. He also at the very beginning says that Gog is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. He does. In 38, he said the chief prince of Magog. And and he was from... Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems weird too. So the Israelites are the ones that are eating the flesh and drinking the blood. No, that's what I was saying. The animals are. He calls the birds and the beasts of the animals to come feast on them. Not the Israelites. Oh, okay. That's why I pointed that out because I also missed that. You have to, he's talking yeah. about the animals at that point. Okay. It's still weird, but it's at least not as disturbing. <laughs> what it is is it's an interesting image of a reverse sacrifice. You see that? Instead of the people sacrificing animals to the Lord and feasting on it, it's now the animals who are feasting on the people as a sacrifice. That's how he kind of describes it. And I think it's very powerful. And yeah, a little bit weird. I find it interesting that he's like, in a way, like judging Israel by bringing these nations against 
them and conquering them but then that also shows that he is god yeah it shows that the reason they were in captivity before was not because these other nations were stronger the reason they were in captivity before was because god was judging them. that's what it reveals it reveals that god is in charge and so even even when israel was suffering it wasn't because god wasn't strong enough to protect them it was because god was was judging them for their uncleanness that's the connection i think other well, so it's it's still it's just like a continuation of the pattern already right like assyria came and conquered israel and then god sent someone to conquer assyria and then babylon did and took israel into exile and then israel returns but once again there's this other nations used but i guess there is maybe like the the scale of it of this part of it feels more final perhaps it's not just another nation that comes along to unseat them um it's like nature itself is going to absorb the nation completely truth and you're right the, the the thing about all apocalyptic literature and scripture and even up to the book of revelation is it's not it's not it's not different in sort of nature the 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 cycle is the same right it's the it's it's people god giving people a chance and then they repent and then they stray and then he judges them and then he calls them back but it's it's different in the sense of its finality that there comes a point where and this is both good and bad right this is good for for those who are in the kingdom of god because the good side is the finality is that cycle will be broken at a certain point there will be no more straying you'll you'll be there and there'll be no more suffering and no more persecution everything's good if you're on the judgment side the finality is there's no more time for repentance after that and so but the cycle itself is is you're right it's the same it's what we've been seeing all the way through because it's the nature of the relationship between god and man at this point that man is very very short of memory yeah i like that so i just want to reiterate the bottom line i think the thing that remember and this is all we we, we keep coming back to this every now and then because it's good to remember we are doing something that the israelites would never have done we are reading text, pouring over it, and examining it. <laughs> and that's okay, because that's part of what we do. And I think God's word could stand up to that. But it is important to remember, these people are just hearing Ezekiel speak. And their basic impression when he's done speaking is, it looks bad now, but it's going to be tremendously and dramatically okay that God is going to win. That is really the main message, right? And it doesn't mean the rest isn't relevant and important. I think it can be. But it just means we need to not miss that main message in all of it. Um, it is fascinating, even in the New Testament, that that even when Paul talks about the end times, he always, always says, talk about the end times so that you'll be encouraged. And even John says, the book of Revelation is to encourage you. And, and it's interesting, we often, these days, we'll talk about it. it. It's to scare people or it's to warn people. And there is some of that, but certainly not within the church. Just like for Ezekiel, within Israel, this passage isn't to warn the Israelites. This passage is to encourage the Israelites. He's done a lot of warning, but that's not what this is about. This is about encouraging them. It's going to be okay. And so I think we think of apocalyptic nature uh, messages as very scary, but to the, to the original hearers of scripture, it was almost always very encouraging. God's going to win and he's going to bring us with him. Um, so I think that's relevant. Other thoughts? Yeah, the placement. Oh, it's just... I like the placement does make a lot of sense too that 
Um, and it like kind of makes more sense too, like with what Lorian said about the pattern and, you know, now they've actually been, you know, like conquered. And so, and they didn't even really like believe it was going to happen forever. And then they were, but then like God is, yeah, telling about an even bigger conquering that's happening is going to happen, but he has that too. That's and good, yeah. That's a good point to remember that this is the darkest moment in the exiles because they've just heard that Jerusalem was destroyed and any hope they might've had that that wasn't going to happen in the prophets who kept telling him it wasn't going to happen. It's now dashed. And now it's very easy to believe they're going to be here forever. And Ezekiel is reminding them that's not how it's going to happen. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Sue, I saw yeah, you. The other thing is he, yeah, he, he says, um, that people will know that I am the sovereign Lord. He's been saying that through everything. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the good stuff and the bad stuff. Absolutely. That is so much a part yeah. of his message, right? That is so much a part of his message. These events happen and then people will see I'm in charge. I'm in charge. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, but right. they don't get it. So he has to do more. Well, like you said, humans are notoriously short of memory. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how well I would get it. <laughs> right. In the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first day. So why are we, why is this chronologically here? Because it gives us a marker. We know exactly where it falls. This is, by the way, about a year. This is about a year anniversary of the fall of Jerusalem. All right. So we've moved forward in time now. So a little bit, a year after they've, they, well, after the fall, probably about six months after they heard of it. Um, in the 12th year, in the 12th month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me. Um, this is also, by the way, this is about 585 BC, which means it's about 20 years after the Battle of Carchemish. Now, I will be very impressed if anybody remembers, because this feels like it was so long ago now. Does anybody remember what the Battle of, of Carchemish was about? Egypt. What's that? Somebody say Egypt or did oh, I? No, I just said it was at the one with like Egypt. Yes. Uh, like, Good job. I'm and impressed. they, where they went there and came back. Yes. So this is the battle with Egypt. So what happened is they were under siege and they tried to make an alliance with Egypt. And Egypt came in and distracted Nebuchadnezzar just long enough that Israel thought, ah, this is working. It's a good thing we made an alliance with Egypt. But then Nebuchadnezzar defeated them. So this is about 20 years after that. But what's happened is, even though Babylon has defeated Egypt, he hasn't completely conquered them yet, mostly because he's not that concerned about it. Um, and so they still have some power, and they still have some post in them, um, which is why Jeremiah and the gang ran to Egypt, because they thought if anybody can protect us, it will be, now Jeremiah, yeah, which is why the gang kidnapped Jeremiah and forced him to go to Egypt. But they ran because they thought if anybody can rescue us, it'll be Egypt. And this is the prophecy about what a bad idea that is. All right, so here we go. Son of man, take up a lament concerning Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you are like a lion among the nations. You are like a monster in the seas, thrashing about in your streams, churning the water with your feet and muddying the streams. I, I kind of love the picture that he starts by describing Egypt as these big, strong things, right? Lions and, and sea monsters. But then it's kind of like the effect of the sea monster is just that he messes things up. He just muddies the streams. I love kind of the smallness of that, you know. So anyway, we'll keep going. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. There's that term, sovereign. With a great throng of people, I will cast my net over you, and they will haul you up in the net. I will throw you on the land and hurl you on the open field. I will let all the birds of the sky settle on you, and all the animals of the wild gorge themselves on you. I will spread your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your remains. I will drench the land with your flowing blood all the way to the mountains, and the ravines will be filled with your flesh. When I snuff you out, that sounds like such a contemporary phrase, doesn't it? When I snuff you out, I will cover the heart, cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the Lord. I will trouble the hearts of many people when I bring about your destruction among the nations, among lands you have not known. I will cause many people to be appalled at you, and the kings will shudder with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. On the day of your downfall, each of them will tremble every moment for his life. For this is what the Lord says, the sword of the king of Babylon will come against you. I will cause your hordes to fall by the swords of mighty men, the most ruthless of all nations. They will shatter the pride of Egypt and all her hordes will be overthrown. I will destroy all her cattle from beside abundant waters, no longer to be stirred by the foot of man or muddied by the hooves of cattle. Then I will let her waters settle and make her streams flow like oil, declares the sovereign Lord. When I make Egypt desolate and strip the land of everything in it, when I strike down all who live there, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the lament they will chant for her. The daughters of the nations will chant it for Egypt and all her hordes, they will chant it, declares the sovereign Lord. In the 12th year, on the 15th day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, so just a little bit later. Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt and consign to the earth below her and the daughters of many nations, along with those who go down to the pit. Say to them, are you more favored than the others? Go down and be laid among the uncircumcised. There's a really interesting imagery that Ezekiel's about to launch into. What he's saying is, I don't know why, Ezekiel is saying to Egypt, look, you're no special. God is saying, tell them, you're just like all the other nations I've destroyed. You're just like all those other people that opposed me as they opposed Israel. You're just like all of them. You're not special. You're going to lay down with them in the grave or in hell, depending on how you read this idea of with the dead. But the point is, they're all dead. You're dead. And then Ezekiel marches in or moves into this imagery where it's like all of these nations that God has conquered are all standing around together in hell or in the grave. And they're all just commiserating with each other that they're all, they've all just been laid low. And it's kind of this interesting counsel or this interesting imagery. And this is what we see. He says, they will fall among those killed by the sword. The sword is drawn. Let her be dragged off with all her hordes. From within the realm of the dead, the mighty leaders will say of Egypt and her allies, they have come down and they lie with the uncircumcised, with those killed by the sword. Assyria is there with her whole army. So Assyria, mighty Assyria, they got laid down. You're not going to be better than them. She is surrounded by all the graves of her slain, all who have fallen by the sword. Their graves are in the depths of the pit and her army lies around her grave. All who have spread terror in the land of the living are slain, fallen by the sword. Elam is there. Elam is uh, basically what is now southern Iran. It was, again, another one of those nations that attacked Israel. Elam is there with all her hordes around her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword. All who had spread terror in the land of the living went down uncircumcised to the earth below. They bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. A bed is made for her among the slain with all her hordes around her grave. All of them are uncircumcised, killed by the sword. Because their terror had spread in the land of the living, they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are laid among the slain. Now, get this one. Meshach and Tubal are there. <laughs> All their hordes are on the graves. 
All of them were uncircumcised, killed by the sword because they spread their terror in the land of the living. But they do not lie with the fallen warriors of old who went down to the realm of the dead with their weapons of war, their swords placed under their heads and their shields resting on their bones, though these warriors also had terrorized the land of the living. He gets to Meshach and Tubal, who again, as far as we know, have never been enemies of Israel, but we have this reference to them back in Gog and Magog. And he says of them that they're further humiliated. They're not only dead, but they don't even get to die as warriors. They don't get to die with their swords and their shields. Somehow they're more humiliated. Why? Maybe because they're part of this end times attack, whatever that means, because it's a bigger attack. Maybe because the way they're defeated is earthquakes and animals, and so it's not even like they're defeated in battle. I don't know. It's just an interesting side note that Ezekiel throws in here. You too, Pharaoh, will be broken and will lie among the uncircumcised with those killed by the sword. Edom is there, her kings and all her princes. Despite their power, they are laid with those killed by the sword. They lie with the uncircumcised, with those who go down to the pit. All the princes of the north and all the Sidonians are there. They went down with the slain in disgrace, despite the terror caused by their power. They lie uncircumcised with those killed by the sword and bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. Pharaoh, he and all his army will see them. In other words, it's going to be with them. And he will be consoled for all the swords that were killed by the sword, declares the sovereign lord. Although I had him spread terror in the land of the living, Pharaoh and all his hordes will be laid among the uncircumcised with those killed by the sword, declares the sovereign Lord. So it's just kind of this interesting imagery of Pharaoh. You know better than anybody, any of these others. All these other nations are in the grave and you're going to be with them too. Um, let's read 33 and then we'll see if uh, anybody has any comments and we'll wrap up. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against the land and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own hand, since on their own head rather. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. So this is something he said before. I don't know exactly why it's here in the, in the prophecies, but it's almost an exhortation to Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel's the watchman. He's like, understand, you're here, you're warning people, you're telling them what to look for, whether it's, the, whether it's Egypt or the Israelites or Babylon, whoever you speak to, you're the watchman. And if people listen to you, then they'll save themselves. If they don't listen to you, that's not on you. But... If you don't tell them, if you don't speak what I tell you to tell them, then that's on you. Then you'll be accountable for their death because you did not warn them. Okay, why this is exactly the moment for this, I'm not sure. Is it Ezekiel explaining to the people why he's always sharing bad news? Is <laughs> because he's doing it for their benefit? I don't know, but let's keep reading. He says, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning for me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin and will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? 
So it appears that there's a there's a shift here, and I think part of what's happening is the big moments have been described now. Ezekiel's given the big prophecies, and a lot of them have been completed. Jerusalem's been destroyed. Egypt's going to be destroyed, or not destroyed, but conquered. They're in Babylon. The exile's begun. Now, while they're here, how do they live? And God is saying to Ezekiel, you're going to tell them. You're going to help them avoid their sin. You're going to help them repent when they're doing wrong. If they don't listen to you, it's not on you, but I am making you in charge of telling them. You are the guy now. Um, you're, you're the only one here. Right? You are functioning as priest that you never got to be, even though you were of the lineage. You are functioning as prophet. You tell them. If they listen, they listen. But then he goes on and he says, that if they're coming to you and they're saying, it's too much. You're telling us all these sins. You're telling us all these problems. We're just going to die. This is all depressing. God says, I want you to make it clear to them. That's not what I want, which I think is a, an amazing verse that God says, I don't even desire the death of the wicked. I think sometimes in, in our rush to justice, we, 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 we think there's something just about taking glee in, in the death. Now, God judges people and justice is justice. And people do undergo their punishment. But even God says, I don't take glee in it. I don't want that. I'd rather they repent. I'd rather they turn and follow me. It harkens back to the story of Jonah. Right? Jonah was like, I don't want to preach to the Ninevites because they might repent and then you'll save them. And I want them to all die. And God's like, no, no, if they'll turn, I want them to turn. And God is saying, tell the Israelites that. Let them know. I'm not just here trying to come up with excuses to kill them. I'm not here trying to come up with excuses to punish them. I actually am here giving you as the watchman to warn them so they can repent, help them understand that, that that's my goal, that's my desire. I would rather they turn, they don't have to die. Therefore, son of man, city or people, if someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. Again, you can change, you can change. This is the short-term immediate message for the Israelites. You can, you, can, you can fix it. If you're overwhelmed right now, all I'm asking is that you repent. Repent, and we're good. Go forward from there. The righteous person who sins will not be allowed to live, even though they were formerly righteous. If I tell a righteous person that they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and do evil, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they have done. And if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, but then they turn away from their sin and do what is just and right, if they give back what they took and pledged for a loan, return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live and will not die. I even like the way that when he says, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're doing evil and they do what's right, and then he gives them some specifics, because I think he's trying to help. He's like, so here's some things you can do, you know, just, just right now, and it'll, it'll, it'll get better. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right, and they will surely live. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just, but it is their way that is not just. If a righteous person turns from the righteousness and does evil, they'll die for it. And if a wicked person turns from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. Yet you Israelites say the way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your own ways. So I think there's, you know, they're kind of feeling like that guy's bad. And God's like, yep, that guy was bad. But that guy's repented. Or, you know, that guy's really good. Why is he getting judged? Well, he was really good, but he, now he's doing these things. He's just kind of trying to be really simple and clear, I think, at this moment for Ezekiel. Tell them, do the right things, and it'll be great. And if you did the wrong things, just repent and do the right things. And I think what he's doing is he's establishing a new, simple, trimmed-down law for them now that they don't <laughs> have the temple and they don't have the priests and they don't have Jerusalem, they're kind of 
lost. And he's told them to settle in as Babylonian citizens. What does that mean? And so I think he's just saying to Ezekiel, you're going to help them. You're going to help them survive the exile. You're going to help them by telling them what to do. And you're going to help them understand that they'll be judged according to what they do. And it's that simple. And they don't have to get all caught up in all these other complications and all these questions. Just kind of just do what's right. And if you do that, we're good. And so I think he's just trying to keep it really simple and really basic. So that's 38, 39, 32, and 33. Any comments, questions, thoughts, anything that stands out to any of you? I do like that. I mean, they are being kind of like judged on what they do, but um, but they always have the option to like repent and turn, you know, around and follow that. So it's kind of almost like, you know, just like try a little bit, like just trust me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And I really love, that's actually one of my favorite verses. I've actually had that discussion, literal discussion with people where they'll say, you know, God hates evil and, and they'll say things very close to he delights in the death of the wicked. And I love being able to pull up Ezekiel and say, actually, God answers that question. He says, no, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I'd rather they turn and they repent. Doesn't mean he won't judge, but it means he would far rather they just do the right thing. And as a father, I can get that on some level, you know, with my kids, you know, there are times where I'm like, I do not just, just, I'm giving you another chance because I don't want to punish you. I don't want to do this. Just, just come on, come on, do the right thing. And I understand that feeling. Um, but with God, it's even more pure and less self-interested than mine is. Sometimes I just don't want to deal with it. So other, other comments, other thoughts, anything else stand out? So what? I was kind of wondering throughout with the, uh, with Gog and Megog, I mean, it seems almost like it's a, a future empire, and we're kind of given a little bit of information as far as like the, the places that it'll include, because it'll include all the way to Tarshish and all that. But I'm just wondering if it's maybe one where we don't necessarily even have the real name of it, just more so it's it's like it's prophesied as opposed to people trying to actually actively stop it. So maybe it is the European Union or something else. You know, we don't know, but it's something else. And the idea being, we're going to, it's going to happen and it's being prophesied, but it's not something that we're supposed to try to prevent. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It does seem like it's not in the sense of, here's a warning. And if you do the right thing, it won't happen. It does seem like it's in the prophecy in the sense of this is what's going to happen. And again, it's an encouragement. So I, I, I can I think the idea too, that it's sort of at this point, almost this pared down law is not just because they were so bad at doing what he asked them to do, but also because they had started weaponizing and perverting what he had asked them to do. And so over and over in the prophets, he says, you're doing the sacrifices, you're giving the offerings and you're bragging about it. And then you're going and treating the people around you however you want, and you're indulging in everything you want, and you've completely missed the point. So I'm taking away all those things that you're using as like a blanket. And I want you to actually just start taking care of the people around you and not profaning God's name. And so he's paring down the law, but he's actually giving them in some ways a much harder task because they no longer get to just, not that it was ever working for them, but they don't even have like that cover anymore. Oh, that's good. And I think that's right. And even the examples he gives them are all in that category, right? There's nothing in that example that is like, honor the feast days and do the sacrifices. And he literally took that away from them by destroying the temple. 
right? I mean, you can almost see right. how right. the destruction of the temple was necessary for their restoration and redemption because they were, they, were, they were counting on that rather than on God. And so God had to kind of, like you say, they were, they were, if we just do the right things in the temple, which they weren't even doing, but if we just do the right things in the temple, we can still treat each other poorly and God won't care. And he's like, you know, let's just take away, like you said, that safety net because it's a false safety net anyway. Let's just take it away so you can actually see the chasm underneath you and just, just walk on the rope that I told you to walk on or the platform or the plank, something bigger than a rope. I made it sound too different. Yeah. Well, I like what you said too, Lorraine, about the weaponizing because, um, I mean, they were basically like, just like smearing God's name and dragging it like through the mud with what they were doing with like, like kind of like performing or doing supposedly what he asked. So then the other nations were kind of like, you know, that this would be our God, you know, or whatever. And then he goes to all this trouble to like, you know, to, to define who he is. So it also does kind of make sense that he, I mean, he doesn't want his name to be um, slandered either. He wants the actual nations, like everyone to know the Israelites. Yes. And the other nations to know like who he is. For sure. For sure. So the, um, by the time we get to the New Testament, the Israelites have so many rules and laws to follow that they've been negated here because he's saying, you know, just live honorably rather than doing the sacrifices, um, worshiping in the temple and so forth. Well, uh, are you kind of questioning why why they come back? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So the thing to remember about all this is these these rules were instituted by God. This this wasn't a misunderstanding on their parts that God asked them to do it. He created the temple, he instituted them. But the point of those rules was to 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 do two things: to give them a place to express their repentance for redemption, to give them a place to be able to show their faith and trust that God could redeem them. Also, to give them a place to say, this is who we are. We are the people of God. But the temple stopped being either of those things. Instead of being a place for actual repentance, it simply became a place for covering over what they were doing, you know, their hypocrisy. And instead of being a place to say, this is what makes us the people of God, they then went out and acted like not the people of God. So it sort of lost its luster in that sense. So God is like, we're just going to have to remove that, get you clear. But it's interesting when they come back from the restoration, one of the things that God leads them to do is rebuild the temple. And, and Ezra is the priest who reintroduces them to the law. So it isn't like God says, we're never doing this again. He's just trying to get it in the right context and in the right place. And you can even argue when Jesus comes back and he does the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't in the Sermon on the Mount ever say the old law is bad. He simply does the same thing that God does here. He says, you're missing the points. Here's the point. It goes beyond the superficial showing. It goes to the heart, and the heart needs to change. Um, even to the Pharisees at one point, when he tells them that they're, 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 they're putting burdens on the people and they're doing the wrong things, he doesn't say, stop doing all the things you're doing. He says, you should have kept doing what you're doing and loved your brother at the same time. So it, there is an interesting sort of 
tension here with the law for us as Gentiles to understand there is no point in scripture where the law is regarded as bad. What's regarded as bad is the way they weaponized, misused, abused the law. And that there are times God pairs it way down to say you're missing the point and kind of forces them back to basics. Um, but he always, but again, Ezra rebuilds the temple. And um, so it's not something he doesn't want. He just wants it in the proper context. Now, when Jesus comes, then the temple's destroyed and the, the church has a whole new sort of approach to, to the law. We'll talk about that when we get there. But I think even at that point, someone like Paul is not ant, what we call antinomian. He's not opposed to the law. He honors the law. He respects the law. But he thinks the law has a very specific purpose. And that purpose is fulfilled once the Messiah has come. And so it, it shifts at that point. But until the Messiah has come, that law is still entirely valid and functional. Yeah. That was kind of a well, answer to a nickel question, but there you go. Well, it is still can do a good job pointing people to Christ. For I sure. mean, the it's law, correct. like it's correct. If we didn't have it, then we wouldn't. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, we'll discuss that idea of him fulfilling the law a little more. It doesn't mean that the law doesn't still serve a function in people, and it doesn't mean the law is bad, um, but it does mean the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.